Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the podcast that can now boast an Edinburgh Comedy Award winner. Congratulations to our very own Ahir Shah. Everybody else, raise your games. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. Uh, I've not won an Edinburgh Comedy Award. On today's show, Legionella Suella sets out to put GPS tags on migrants and tells police forces that no crime is too small to investigate. But cash-strapped cops beg to differ. Plus, it's a mailbag special. We've opened up about your emails to everyone this week for a Q&A extravaganza. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, after a dedicated team of monster hunters descended on Loch Ness, we're asking the panel to recall their childhood dreams and obsessions and tell us which ones still linger. Let's meet the panel. First up is commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hi, Dory. Uh, the European Commission has said that the wildfires in Greece this summer have been the largest ever recorded in the bloc. Mm. Uh, summer has been underwhelming in Britain this year, but across Europe it was the hottest on record. How prepared is the EU for this sort of thing to happen every summer? Adaptation rather than prevention. Prevention would be great, but adaptation... Um, Yes, I think that they're doing quite well on adaptation, but really there isn't enough focus on prevention. And and when I say prevention, I don't mean sort of adverts saying don't flick your cigarette out of your car. I mean active land management. There's a, a sort of romantic, quite old-fashioned notion of uh, natural beauty being equated to sort of complete wilderness. Um, that is actually both on the left and the right of politics for, di- for very different mm-hmm. reasons. Um, but but strategic fire prevention requires land management, um, clearing undergrowth, rewetting, even cutting trees, um, which mm. sounds completely counterintuitive when, when we're talking about rewilding and creating carbon sinks and all of that stuff. But actually, occasionally, you have to create safe sort of strips in between areas of wilderness so that fires don't spread, which used to occur quite naturally because of farming and are not there anymore. So people see mountains with the forest growing wild, but actually forests which are unmanaged, which involve a lot of dry undergrowth, which are crowded, are basically fuel um, in those circumstances. Now, there is a plan. The, the, the EU do have a sort of active fire management uh, system where they're buying loads of those Canadair aircrafts, you know, that drop water for anyone to use and that kind of thing. But there is also a sort of strategic management plan that is stuck politically at the moment because, shock horror, the Central and Eastern European usual suspects, Austria, Hungary, etc., are like, hands off our forests, Brussels. Um, they, they don't want to hear of it. But, you know, it costs 19,000 euros per hectare to put out a fire, and it only costs 2,000 euros per hectare to manage, right. to strategically uh, prevent fire, as it, as it were. And that covers loads of hectares on both sides because you're basically protecting the whole thing. So everyone's got to pull their finger out and get on with the programme because we're going to get a lot more of this. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive at Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hello. Um, some stats have been released about voter ID in the recent by-elections. In Uxbridge, of the people who were turned away because they didn't have the right ID, only two-thirds came back to vote. If that was replicated across the country, over 60,000 people could lose out. Uh, 
which demographics and therefore which parties were most affected? Because remember Mog uh, sort of admitting that they <laughs> hoped to suppress the youth slash Labour vote and uh, ended up no. suppressing the pensioner slash Tory vote. But how is that borne out? Um, so there isn't any demographic data published about the by-elections yet. But I understand that the Electoral Commission has collected some of that data via uh, poll clerks um, who have to collect it. Um, and they will be reporting in full in September. And the government is reporting in November. And the government have replied to Best for Britain because we had a campaign asking our supporters to write uh, directly uh, to the relevant minister and say, what the hell are you going to do? You need to expand the types of ID that are acceptable. Mm. And we've had a response saying they will consider expanding ID forms that are acceptable. Um, we do know a little bit from the Electoral Commission's interim report about those turned away in May at the, at the local elections, so not, not the by-elections. Um, and 4% of all non-voters said they didn't vote because of voter ID requirement. There are about 14,000 voters not issued with a ballot paper because they couldn't show an accepted form of ID. 68% had not brought any ID, 28% had brought the incorrect type of ID that wasn't accepted, and the remainder were refused for other ID-related reasons, so maybe their photograph didn't look like Enough them. like them. Enough like is them, a, whatever. A nectar card? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the ridiculous thing that, you know, old person rail card, yes, young person rail card, no, absolutely outrageous. Um, demographic data is trickier because the polling stations weren't collecting that uh, of those turned away. And the electoral register itself doesn't include that kind of data. But the commission has said where relevant data was available, because a few local authorities uh, were were trying to identify uh, you know, the, the kinds of voters being turned away, there, there seemed to be a correlation between Asian populations and those with disabilities being more likely huh. uh, to be turned away than others. Um, and that the reason being in and around being related to IDA. Not, not totally clear whether the Electoral Commission was referring to their own unpublished research on mm. that or research published by others. But, you know, anyone being turned away and being disenfranchised, yeah. frankly, is outrageous. And no matter these numbers, and if you say things like 4%, maybe it doesn't feel like that many. But when you think about the cases of actual electoral fraud, basically anything above a, a, a very, very low well, there's, there's essentially, single digit there's essentially number is not, close to zero right, exactly. electoral fraud. Exactly. So it's a solution in search of a problem. Seth DeVoe is a journalist and author of Behind Closed Doors, The Secret Life of London Private Members Clubs. Hi, Seth. Hello, hello. Uh, James Cleverly has become the first Foreign Secretary in five years to visit China. Uh, whenever we speculate on who will be the next Tory leader, Marie Leconte always goes for him. Um, do you think he's one to watch? I don't usually start these shows by quoting Shakespeare, but Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. Uh, there's no shortage of very ambitious ministers out there. I'm not so sure. Uh, my money's on Kemi Badenoch, I think, to be the next Tory leader. Um, what cleverly seems to have cornered the market in is very much the sort of Jeremy Hunt thing of being the establishment technocrat mm. who's a very good administrator but not necessarily the person who delivers what Tory members want. Um, what I've noticed on these foreign trips is he's doing a lot of what uh, Harold Macmillan used to do when he was prime minister, which is uh, wearing a hat wherever he goes. 
What kind of hat? I haven't seen the pictures. What kind of hat is he wearing? Um, Well, I was more thinking of his previous trip uh, to Kazakhstan, where he was wearing Kazakh national dress, and he did wear a fur hat that was very ostentatious. Is he wearing a Chinese? Because this could go really wrong. (laughs) If he's wearing, it depends what he thinks a Chinese hat is. Yeah. And whether it's whether it's whether it's based on very old uh, racist newspaper cartoons. (laughs) Memories of Prince Philip make me think this should go very very wrong very quickly. (laughs) I would just avoid. Yes. My, if I was foreign secretary. My money's still on Penny Morden if she holds her seat to be next leader. It's, it's a tricky one to hold, though, isn't it? It really is. First up this week, if in doubt, announce another crime week. Uh, Hod favourite Suella Braverman is desperate to get migrants back on the Bibby Stockholm after an outbreak of Legionnaires disease on the boat earlier this month. It turns out there was actually a Home Office official at the meeting where test results were discussed, but the project went ahead until two days later everyone was evacuated. Now the Fire Brigade Union is threatening a legal challenge over the barge's safety, calling it a death trap. In a busy week, Braverman is also planning to fit asylum seekers with GPS tags and telling police to follow all reasonable crime leads right down to the smallest offences. But is she giving them the resources they need? Alex, we'll start with the Bibby Stockholm uh, revelation. Now, that might seem like a scandal. Um, and the thing with uh, the thing with Braverman's is, as I'm always wondering, like the, the inhumanity is not a scandal because that's her USP, but incompetence can be. Yes. Has this... But everything that she gets involved with is this sort of merry cocktail of inhumanity and incompetence. How's Bibi Stockholm working out for her? Not well. I, I mean, I think the the I think she's come out of this summer with her position in real danger, actually. Um, and I don't think she went into the summer with her position in real danger. But I think there are now voices even in her faction of the party. I thought you were going to say an ad. <laughs> no, yeah, sure. But in her faction of the yeah, party... There's just this metallic are, screaming. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm still reeling from the revelation. It's Crimes Week. I thought it was Stop the Planes Week. Um, but there, there are people in the right of the Tory party who seem to think now that maybe she's not the right person to be their vanguard. She's not really making them look great because she's incompetent. So, yes, I think the Tory base won't have the same qualms about the the baby Stockholm that you and I have, you know, they, their gripe w- w- won't be how how can we put innocent people in a prison barge? Their gripe will be how come there's no innocent people in the prison barge? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the result is still the same. You know, she's she's basically she's basically creating this thing where both of the people who hate the policy and the people who love the policy end up dunking. I'm surprised she didn't make Legionnaire's disease part of the policy. Because <laughs> I think that would have made it quite popular with the Tory base. Yes, sure. I mean, I, I think we were hours away from Lee Anderson sort of making a statement I, going, in my day... My dad had a bit of, le- <laughs> bit of Legionnaire's disease. No one complained. Put hairs on your chest. Or they could bring in a heavyweight Home Secretary who's unfettered by scandal... Like Grant Shapps. Oh, God. Oh, God. He was very briefly, wasn't he? Six days. Braverman is facing legal action from the FBU over safety on the barge and, of course, the European Court of Human Rights over the Rwanda plan. Um, Do you rate their chances? Do you see her being blocked legally? I mean, the Fire Brigade Union 
is a legal letter that's basically asking mm-hmm. you for assurances rather than action at this stage. Oh, sure, but it's like yeah, it's a yeah, 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 oh, f- yeah, for sure. But um, but I think it's effectively a liability issue, not not uh, not in legal terms, but in sort of public. Um, perception terms, they're basically saying, we wash our hands of this. Um, And I think it's a very brave Home Secretary who will put 500 people on that barge knowing they are unsafe. Um, And considering the fire brigade's um, uh, objections are primarily to do with overcrowding, she will posture, she will put 50 people on or maybe 100 people on, Mm. but she won't push beyond that limit because if something goes wrong, her career is over forever. Yes. So, so, uh, okay, so, so, that it's, so actually the letter does its job yeah, without absolutely, anything else absolutely. to be done. Now, the, the ECHR is a, a... I mean, she's not even there yet. She's, she's lost in the Court of Appeal, mm-hmm. and they're now going to the Supreme Court. She's, at the moment, she's being thwarted by Domestic British court. judges in British <laughs> courts, which is exactly what she wants. Enemies, yeah. Enemies of the people. The Supreme Court case, I think, won't be heard until early December, would be my guess. So... Even if that then went to the ECHR, you're looking the wrong side of a general election, I'm pretty sure. I'd say even though I'd rather she was not Home Secretary, um, the job of being Home Secretary does seem so terrible that I do get some pleasure out of the fact that such a terrible person is is, yeah. is, is having such a rough time with it. I, Not for the people who were affected, I, I, I hasten to add, yeah. but just just seeing somebody so thoroughly at their depth, seeing their political ambitions it's, shrivel. It's just the discourse is so fucking twisted right now. I, mm. I told you I was listening to Origin Story on my way here and about the, the new elites. And, and I was thinking that she comes out and makes these statements in the papers about how she's being thwarted by judges and lefty lawyers. You know, this is the Home Secretary. This is the person who wields the most draconian yeah. expression of state force against the individual and she says that she's the victim and some schmo who crossed over who walked from Afghanistan crossed over in an inflatable is the elite that's sorting well her. I'm, I'm reading Ian's uh, Ian's book and uh, the impression you, you do get is like the well, ministers have an enormous amount of power the government has an enormous power and if things aren't going well you can't you can't really claim all oh, my hands are tied by the overmighty justice system. Yeah. Uh, Naomi, Labour is calling the tagging of migrants a gimmick this week. Um, quite a strong statement from a shadow minister there. But back in December, Keir Starmer said there were certain cases where he'd support it. Um, the Labour game plan at the moment seems to be the Tories introduce something horrible and then Labour go, well, it's there now. Um, would does, Do you worry that this is another retrotory policy that Labour could end up accepting? Or, or, or do you, I mean, do you even see it taking off, Well, okay. given the time yeah, good, good, frame? Yeah, yeah, good, good follow-up question there. So, um, there are some things, very few, but there are some things I kind of get in the whole, if Labour just keeps quiet, doesn't, you know, scare the horses too much, pre-GE, seems a little bit Tory light, I can just about live with. But on this one, on issues like this, where it is so obviously red meat to the right-wing Tory voter base that I think Starmer 
uh, should risk being categorical mm. in condemning it. I should say, I suppose, that his comment about GPS was some months ago, right. and actually the shadow cabinet's response to has, this been, has been pretty harsh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and look, and the Tories are going to accuse Labour of being soft on crime, regardless. Regardless, regardless, regardless. So uh, this is a test of morality rather than political strategy. And, of course, the danger for Starmer um, is by not having a clear anti-stance on it, which it sounds like they're, they're hopefully getting to, um, is that those who would never vote Tory anyway could, you know, feel that their vote's being taken taken for granted and stay home. But on the, on the fundamental issue of it, we tag those at risk of absconding you know, from their bail terms or not meeting their curfew requirements. You know, people that may, may be considered slightly mm, dangerous mm. to society to be untagged. We microchip dogs. You know, if you really want to know where these people are, let them work. Let them earn money. Let them pay tax. Mm. Let them have a life. Because then you'll know where they are. I well, mean, HMRC are bloody good at finding Well, Labour pointed out we tag and, criminals and these are not criminals. Exactly. Exactly. And that should be the end of the yeah. sentence for Labour and, and yeah. good if, if that's the line. Um, Ajita Chakraborty in The Guardian wrote an alarming piece the other day about far-right radicalisation in Khanelli. Khanelli? Khanelli. Khanelli. Khanelli, South Wales, uh, where podcast, podcasters... <laughs> <laughs> May well have been. There might have been a few. Might have been a few. Um, uh, hordes of podcasters being uh, clashing with riot police... Uh, where protesters are blocking plans to house asylum seekers in a hotel, one of 400 across the country operated by the Home Office, racist conspiracy theories abound. Um, I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, what's happening in mm -hmm. Cabinet, the top line of, of sort mm -hmm. of Braverman's career. But is this an underreported consequence of her war on asylum seekers, that you are feeding, you are feeding the crazy racists? Do you mean that the failure of the Home Office to process these applications, well, meaning that there are now thousands and thousands and thousands of people having to be housed. Well, the combination of, in, 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 of inhumanity, inhumanity you know, and incompetence. Oh, because if they, were, if they were doing their job and they're actually processing these applications at the rate that they should be, then, oh, you know, the, who's the bogeyman for the... For the Tory party to point but, out but and this whip up the right. I mean, this it, can't be purposeful. It, it cannot be, be, it cannot be purposeful. It's a, it's you've, total got, you've got a kind of racist protest camp Useful stopping you from housing asylum seekers. <laughs> it's disgusting. And as we've said so many times on the podcast, when we've talked about, oh, it feels like, you know, the fascia rising again and the far right. They never go away. They're always there. Populism and horrible, deeply racist, um, if not, you know, xenophobic at best it's always there it's always around us we always have to be vigilant to it and the home office and you know the home secretary's total incompetence over processing these I mean, it's not the fault of these people that they are being housed in hotels yeah, it is not their fault that they are costing the british taxpayer money to be there they would desperately love to have been processed by now um, and we know from all of the migration experts that, that talk to us on the show and that we hear on the news, you know, the majority of people do are found to have had a very legitimate yeah. claim for asylum. They are not economic migrants just here to, you know, bleed us dry. Quite, quite the opposite. Moving on, Seth, uh, Braverman wants the police to investigate every crime, including ones like phone theft and shoplifting, which are often effectively ignored. Only 3.9% of burglaries and 0.9% of crimes against 
Theft from the person, so muggings, uh, result in somebody being charged. So we'll get to the snags. But, I mean, is that a good idea in principle? Has she actually said something which sounds quite uh, positive? I mean, in, in principle, of course. And, you know, I think we all have experience of crime not being investigated. I can remember a few years back being burgled. And despite the fact that there was actually a visible fingerprint on the window by the burglar, the police still weren't interested in doing anything about it. And that's a t totally normal experience these days. Um, what I think is dangerous, though, and counterproductive, is when the Home Secretary starts to micromanage what the police should be doing day by day. Well, the National Police Chiefs Council responded to see trust in police return to where it used to be an effectively staffed and properly funded police service is essential. So essentially, show us the money. Yeah. Um, I mean, is this primarily a resources problem? Because I suppose I don't want to think that the police are actually like, we could investigate this, but we just can't be asked. Um, I'm, I'm, being, I'm assuming uh, that they're rather stretched and that they go, somebody whose phone got nicked by someone going past on a bike it's just not worth it. That is genuinely a big part of it, but let's not pretend that's the be-all and end-all, and let's not pretend that there aren't massive problems with the police today. Um, I don't think it's a particularly controversial statement to say that there has been endemic institutional racism in, in the police for a very long time. Mm. Uh, something like the Sarah Everard case very clearly shows that violence against women going uninvestigated by the police is a massive problem. Trust in police is at a, a very low point for a really good reason. Um, and one of the problems is the more we shed light on these scandals, actually it doesn't help morale very much. You know, why would you become a police officer under those circumstances? Um, and so it's, it's this vicious cycle that you find yourself caught in. Uh, it's not a particularly modern or recent dilemma, but it's something that I think has become more and more apparent in recent years. You know, but the, it, the degree to which, for example, in the 1970s, the Metropolitan Police actually was so endemically corrupt, they had to bring in outside policemen to investigate the police um, was just one case. Um, I mean, I can think of a dramatic example actually from uh, a work of fiction. If you've ever come across Touch of Evil, the 1957 film looking at the whole sort of morality of policing and a number of observations in that. Uh, the job has to be tough. A policeman's job is only easy in a police state. There are plenty of soldiers who don't like war. It's a dirty job. So this is something we're grappling with, which is not... I think the National Police Chiefs Council should have said that instead. Yeah. <laughs> Just quotes, quotes from Touch of Evil. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Braverman is boasting that uh, the government has recruited 20,000 more officers, which is true, but because so many jobs were lost, including during austerity, there are actually 4,000 fewer officers than there were in 2010. Um, what is Braverman's relationship with the police? Like? She loves being photographed with them. That's pretty clear. Um, like, a, like a child at a local fete. <laughs> yeah. And if, if you don't have much to say, you can be photographed. Only evil. <laughs> One of the problems in politics is the degree to which X thousand more bobbies on the beat is your answer to anything. And that doesn't look at what the police are doing, why different types of crime aren't being investigated, why the nature of crime changes, why the nature of online crime opens up whole new vistas, for example, why types of fraud. I mean, I'll give you an example of this, actually. I was a few years ago trying to, um, as a journalist, investigate a blatant case of electoral fraud. The police force covering the area didn't want to know about it. They said, oh, it's, it's all action fraud. You need to go to the fraud specialist, please. Fraud specialist wanted nothing to do with it. They said, oh, no, no, you need to go to the police force. And essentially, for various reasons that were 
hot potatoes and so on, no one wants to know. Um, Alex, as well as uh, resource problems with the police, um, the court and prison systems uh, under strain as well, right? Are hugely huge clogged part. up, hugely clogged up. And, you know, it has to be said that the pandemic really didn't help with that. There was already there was. a backlog. They were already hugely underfunded, but, but the pandemic created mm-hmm. an extra sort of bottleneck. Because it makes you think, if you, if you actually did charge the 99.1% of uh, other muggers, um, there wouldn't be anywhere to um, Well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I, I guess the, the theory, the, the, the theory of criminal law would be that if you, if you actually charged a very high percentage of people committing a crime, they wouldn't commit that crime. If they knew that, you know, they are very likely to get caught and, and be sent to jail, then the deterrent effect would. No, would I think come that's into, really good, but I'm just saying, like, view. there's not the capacity to. Oh, oh absolutely. Try people, right? oh, no, it's com- listen, it's completely clogged up. It's not, um, at, at the moment, rehabilitative in any way. It's, it's just people being warehoused, quite mm-hmm. literally. And there is an interesting parallel with what's going on with the asylum system that is also clogged up because, um, I mean, like the the asylum applicants, the people who have not been convicted of any crime, they haven't even been, they they're not even alleged to have done something wrong, and they're being they're being put on barges or whatever. What happens if the justice system gets similarly clogged up? Like, what are you going to do? Keep people indefinitely in prison because you can't process them, and that's the point. That the, the 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 Gordian knot being uh, solved n- necessitates the state doing its fucking job, beginning to uh, to basically be effective in processing stuff. That is the job of yeah. the state. Well, asylum seekers currently uh, they face GPS tagging, being housed in a death trap barge. Yeah. Or harass- harassed by uh, <laughs> Welsh racists, yeah. <laughs> um, and they'd be much better off uh, committing a burglary or uh, stealing your phone. Uh, yeah. That seems to be the um, the safer <laughs> option because then this hands off from the state. And it used to be the case that the argument for why somebody should be imprisoned or indeed tagged was: Are they a threat to the public? I mean, what are we afraid of with asylum seekers? That they might do a job and work for a living? No, what, no, what they're there. afraid of is really quite simply that the Home Office is so chaotic, they will never be able to find them again. Mm-hmm. Not because these people are hiding, mm-hmm. because they're useless. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it has to also be said that there is an ideological layer here, you know. Shrink the state, make the state small, make the state non-muscular, make the state atrophy. This is what happens. And the slack is picked up by private companies. More and more gated communities, more and more venues are hiring their own security. More and more people put security systems on bars on the windows. All of that is economic activity. It's not an accident is what I'm saying. Now, the podcast elves have been sifting through the mailbags for a one-off But Your Email special. Uh, Normally, we do one a week from our Patreon backers. But before Parliament returns and the autumn madness begins, we've opened it up to everyone. So let's get stuck in. Um, 
Now, I'm not sure if this is the easiest or the hardest question. Uh, John Christensen, if you had to guess, how many seats will the Tories have after the next general election? Ooh. Like, let's predict rather than wish. About 200? I was going to say about 115. That's... Oh, come, come now. Surely that's wishful thinking. (laughs) I mean, I would say somewhere between that. I mean, I can't... I just can't see, like, the proper wipeout that you... I can't remember how many they got in 97. 165 and then 166 in 2001. So that's the bar. It's will it be worse or more or not? Yeah. I mean, the current current models that I've seen have them on 164 versus... No, sorry, 137. 137. The models have them on 137 with Labour and 425. But I think it will tighten. It I will, think it surely. will shift before the next election. So I would say 160 to 395. What? That's like a that. big range. <laughs> what? No, no, I oh, mean right, to right, Labour. Right, right, oh, sorry. Right, okay. No, I, I, I'm saying that <laughs> they'll have about 160. I just Labour love the answer. About 390. Somewhere between wow. zero and 650. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Okay, good. So we're, so we're all saying below 200. Yes. About that, yeah. Elizabeth Harris, David Lammy says that Labour would be too busy setting out their programme to repeal some of the really heinous laws passed by this government. Is there another way to reduce the impact of laws against protesting, etc., or are we just going to be stuck with them? Uh, Naomi, we were saying that this was a a little bit of a frustration, that that it would be nice if Labour were like, here are some bad things the Tories have done that we are going to Mm -hmm. uh, get rid of, Um, because I think you know, obviously some things are, are very time consuming. I think some of these wouldn't be. And it's not really an excuse to go, oh, we're just going to be busy. What, I know, not spending money or whatever, yeah. they're, whatever they're promising. Um, but in, in terms of what other people can do, reducing the impact of laws against protesting. So if you can't repeal that law... I mean, there's secondary legislation. There are sort of, you know, tweaks that could be done that wouldn't take up as much uh, parliamentary time and as we were talking about with Ian's book executive power is real they can do a hell of a lot and bypass parliament as uh, Johnson uh, and his successors have done on a range of things Um, and then there's also just turning a blind eye so there is also the signalling you can give to the Met to don't go heavy handed on protesters don't over police today's I, I think that's the most important and it'll aspect. be a n- nudge nudge wink wink yeah. stuff I think that's the most important aspect and I think that's why they're not particularly interested it's not a first hundred days thing right to to make something not happen that wasn't really happening so you, very much you, anyway. You can do it more subtly. Well, I mean, it's going, like well, smoking say, pot, you know. Right. It's never been decriminalised, but the police has been told just ignore As we've seen, the just... police don't have to investigate every <laughs> crime. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I mean, so if you're setting out priorities, you know, in your first 100 days, you want really economic growth, stimulus, mm-hmm. uh, public uh, um, uh, infrastructure projects, you want all of that because you want people to start feeling that economically the atmospherics are changing so that's, straight So away. that's it's promising, this idea there. that things probably would change, but they wouldn't change in a dramatic, like, we're putting a red line through this law. Yeah, but way. also, if you wanted to go that route, I think the idea that you don't have the time for it is a load of old cobblers. Actually, we have plenty of experience of governments of both sides of the last few decades doing a mass repeal. Um, passing new laws really quickly is hard right. and not good 
for a number of reasons, but actually just repealing things and resetting them to an earlier stage is much less of a problem. I just think that I suppose, yeah, I mean, I was a bit disappointed by that line from Lammy because it's just yeah, like, that no, doesn't I know. seem true. I get that. I mean, the counter argument would be like, you know, the, there's been such a ca chaotic sort of tagging of stuff onto other stuff like immigration. There's been like four major pieces of legislation that have gone through all with really quite gnarly different things. And the argument would be, is it worth repealing the, you know, the Borders Act or is it worth three years down the line doing a review of the immigration law as it stands and, you know, getting right, right. rid of the lot and replacing it with something that makes sense? So I, if I were Labour, I would be pushing a lot more the line that these needs, this thing needs a systematic review of that whole area, basically, and we'll get round to it. Uh, Sally Bean asks, I wasn't a fan of Jeremy Corbyn, but I do think his slogan for the many, not the few, originally Tony, <laughs> Tony Blair's slogan. Uh, was was it really? Yeah, I didn't know that. He, he used it back in the 90s. was a pretty good encapsulation of the difference between the Tories and Labour. Given that it is presumably no longer usable, <laughs> I'd imagine not, um, can the panel come up with an alternative phrase that Labour could use to express what they stand for? Now, if I was being cynical, I would sort of go... You know, the same, but a bit nicer. That's that's when I'm at my most kind of uh, uh, frustrated. Uh, frustrated. Yeah. But sure. obviously, yeah. obviously, there are still significant uh, differences. So, Naomi, you are a seasoned nah. campaigner and power broker <laughs> and mover and shaker. And I wish. Uh, warrior queen I wish. in the political sphere. So you've come up with um, you must have had the whiteboard of slogans a few times. <laughs> so what would Labour's phrase be? Because for the many, not the few was good. It was good. Um, I also quite like enough is enough. And that as a campaign seems to have disappeared completely. And mm. I noticed that the sort of more Corbynite mm. faction MPs have taken it off of their Twitter bio you know, handles and things like that. Yeah. So enough is enough seems to have disappeared. Um, it, it's when, when we analyse elections the world over that are change elections, it's that word. It's change mm. is always in it when you think yeah. about Obama and <clears throat> various others. It's amazing the way Obama reason. managed to just get the word because of that poster, managed to yeah. get the word hope. Hope, yeah. And it's like, it's, that is it. come on. Yeah. But he got, he, but, he sort of claimed it. So it can mm. be as simple as things like that. I mean... We've talked about how constipated the justice system is, how nothing works, everything is broken. So I think anything about fixing, you know, fixing yeah. all of the shit that the Tories have created, fixing the problems that they've created, fixing the railways, not fixing the elections, that has a different meaning. Don't I wouldn't <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't go with that. But you know, th there's a lot of things that can be <clears throat> Fixed. Fix you, and they could use the Coldplay song. They could in. see <laughs> things yeah. I quite like the the slogan with which Labour won in the seventies in Australia. I think, which was just "It's time." Anything that reinforces that sense that you know, is that yeah. is that time yeah. for change? Because yeah. that's essentially really their argument. Had, yeah, they've had they've had their yeah. go, and it's enough now. Um, better or better than that lot. So the best be I could one. come up with in the very short time we've had. So if you're listening, Labour Party, I am very worth employing. Yeah. Um, uh, is repair, rebuild, renew. 
just because mm-hmm. I think there is something about the damage that's been done yeah. and that you're coming in with a brief to just make things better. I feel inspired. Um, as quickly as possible. Yeah. So that would uh, be Seth, my... It's important that it doesn't age badly when you're in government. And so something along the sense that we all have now of there's got to be something better than this can really come back and hit you badly four or five years down the line if you haven't delivered. You know, even its time might be quite ominous if the government doesn't do really well to begin with. So I think it's important to spell out what you stand for. And I would go for something as simple as the public good. You know, we're all hurting. We can all see what's wrong. And it's not about presenting a series of grievances about ourselves. It's what kind of a world we want to live in. David Hurd asks, are Labour reducing the scope of their electoral offer because, oh, it's sort of related this one, because Starmer et al. realised that the state writ large has been so denuded since 2010 that it simply doesn't have the capacity to implement significant spending programmes without significant risk of fraud, a reliance on external consultants, etc., that may have the effect of discrediting the nascent Labour administration. So this is another explanation for why they're not promising much, because they think that actually... The state has been stripped down too much to deliver it without having to rely on the Michelle Moans of the world. I don't know if that's true, but it might be true. I don't agree with him about fraud, but I think he has a point, actually, on this stripping out of the state and this reliance of external consultants. And you see this across government departments. Uh, things like in-house research functions that they just don't have anymore. They, were, they laid off the civil servants five, ten years ago. I mean, it's a huge risk. We've talked about it before. Um, There is a pattern where centre parties and centre-left parties are given a much shorter time to really make a difference Mm. than right-wing parties are for some reason. Just their electorate expect big change more quickly. But as a former civil servant, I think I wouldn't underestimate the effect that just a change in management can have. There is a kernel of truth, you know, to the Tory complaint about the blob. There is a largely exhausted, demotivated, depressed, directionless civil service and public service in general that just can't deliver the stuff they want delivered. What they don't say is that they're responsible for it being in that state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but th- there is quite a magical effect that that relief can have on public servants of an incoming government, you know, that doesn't have an agenda against them, that is not basically set against its workforce. And the hope that that can stimulate can have a really huge effect very quickly. And, you know, I wouldn't underplay that. I think Labour can come in and suddenly you will see a state apparatus spring into action because they want to keep them there effectively. Peter Gowers, that's high for the special. Hi, Peter. (laughs) Is PR the new Brexit? Does it, this is, I'm looking towards there. This is a Naomi special. Does it fail and become unpopular as soon as you specify a model and allow it to be attacked as undemocratic, too complicated or unrepresentative or easy for parties to manipulate? Or is there a version 60 plus percent of the country would vote for if it was offered? And if so, what model is it? Now, to set that up, the AV referendum (laughs) of 2011... That sort of failed, but a lot of PR advocates said actually they didn't like that version anyway. It wasn't PR, it It wasn't proportional. Well, no, but you know what I mean. Like, sorry, electoral reform advocates Mm -hmm. said that they didn't Mm -hmm. like that version anyway. Um, 
so obviously it, it does matter which version you choose. Mm. So is there a version? Because I think a lot of people, if you just went, let's change it, mm. then as in the Brexit analogy, you know, that's quite appealing. But if it's let's change it to X, yeah. what would the magic X be? Okay, okay. We're going to break this question down, Peter Gowers. So... <laughs> Silencia says yes. she was doing stretches. <laughs> Is PR the new Brexit? I hope so, because uh, Brexit got none. That <laughs> <laughs> is a roaring Two. success. Two, leave one by not specifying which Brexit. Yeah. Had they, they probably would not have yeah. won. Yeah. Let us not fall into a trap. Let's make like those that won. And then, you know, he's sort of saying, you know, it... it can models be attacked as being undemocratic, too complicated, unrepresentative? Well, no, because most liberal democracies around the world, including many of our own nations within the UK, use a proportionate system. Yeah. It's only Belarus and, and the UK that still use first-past-the-post for national elections. A Belarus, um, that beacon yeah, of democracy exactly. that Indeedy. will be joining... Indeedy. But then, you know, the to be fair, you know, as first past post advocates say, Belarus does produce strong and stable yeah. governments <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for decades. Um, it's not complicated because if, if voters in Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales can get their heads around it, I'm sure it's not too much of a stretch uh, for the thicky English to do it too. And there's no more system, no system more open to manipulation than first past post. So. Mm. As long as it's proportionate, which AV is not, I think that's completely fine. Generally, there's just over 50% support for PR and poll after poll after poll, big chunk of don't knows and very, very small levels of support for first past posts. And, you know, that's been tracked over the sort of last 10, 15 years of polling. Um, where you have to sort of think about things is, do you need to offer it as a referendum to people? If it's included in party manifestos and those parties form government, mm. one would argue they don't need to. Yeah. Is there something other than a referendum you could do like a commission, like a citizens assembly kind of model, at least preceding a referendum question? Mm. Big mistake we learned from uh, EU. So... You know, I think that there are a lot of good people that do a lot of work thinking about this. It's true that you've got uh, different approaches to proportional representation advocated by those that are pro-PR within Labour, within the Lib Dems, within the Greens. There is something called the Good Systems Agreement that Make Votes Matter uh, produced, which is being, I think, reviewed at the moment. And uh, all of the, the sort of opposition parties have, have broadly signed up to that, including, yeah. as I believe, uh, Reform UK. Um, so it's sort of a cross, very, very much a cross-party thing. Personally, I do think the single transferable vote model is probably the one uh, that is most acceptable. You might find the Greens don't love that as much, but they, it's certainly better for them than the first, I suppose. And you can build in all sorts of things like thresholds um, and, and, you know, things yeah. that, that soothe a lot of people's concerns about it. Seth? I agree with all of that, but I'd actually go further, firstly, on... Um just the democratic deficit point, which is most people don't frankly care about the intricacies of the system. They just want to know that it's fair and that it delivers. And if it's a case of voting one, two, three, uh, that's the yardstick for that. What's important to bear in mind is that history is replete with parties of the left 
in opposition, saying the voting system isn't fair, it's, you know, we're very hard done by now, um, finding in government, oh, this is actually working quite well for us, and um, only rediscovering an interest in electoral reform when it looks like they're not going to get re-elected, by which time their majority is in danger. And I can give you so many examples. Indeed, the most recent example, actually, is in Canada, where, of course, Justin Trudeau's Liberals came to power saying, this will be the last election yeah. ever fought under first-past-the-post. And then four years later, saying, actually, this is quite good for us. Let's just continue yeah. with the current yeah. system. So if you want to introduce PR, the way to do it is to make sure it is either the first bill or one of the very first bills mm. introduced by government because what you're doing is you're sending out a p45 to every one of your mps yep. at least yeah with a five-year notice yep. and leave it any later even leave it just two or three years into the parliament and suddenly it's a matter of oh well you know this cabinet minister has a seat that looks quite dicey in a pr yep. election and some vote some of our uh, listeners do seem to sort of st still have that idea that that if you have pr then the, the left centre-left rules forever, which I find quite a lot of people just go, well, this is the way to lock out well, the Tories forever. people vote for it, yeah. But except, except if you look around the world at other PR things, that's not... Is there a single country in the world where the right has just been banished and never gets power? No, but but that's but that's in, not a reason. What, what I mean is that that, that that seems yeah. to be right, both a a, a sort of grubby mm. and yeah. also false yeah. reason to yeah. support. Yeah. It. Yeah. All, all it does is it means that no party with extreme opinion gets extreme power. Mm. You know, yeah. no one gets absolute power more or less indefinitely, which is what an increasingly extremist Conservative Party mm. has had for the majority of our lifetimes. Talking of which, Aidan Harding, I recently came across this definition of conservatism via blog by Cory Doctorow. It seems like quite an American point of view, but I increasingly see this in British conservatism. Conservatism consists of exactly one proposition, to wit, there must be in-groups whom the law protects but does not bind, alongside out-groups whom the law binds but does not protect. I wonder what the panel makes of this. Now, this, I think, is perhaps the most popular blog comment of all time. It was literally just some guy posted it on a blog uh, in the comments section and it got picked up and has now become one of these famous uh, things which which and people are desperate to attribute it to somebody more famous yeah, who has the yeah. same name as him yeah. and it's not he's just it, like some it was guy. a it was a minor composer called Frank Wilhoyd he's composer but he's got the same name weirdly because it's not Francis a, M Wilhoyd yeah as a yeah. kind of politics yeah, right. professor yeah, 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 or whatever yeah, yeah. But it's no it's just because it, I've looked at I've looked at this before yeah, some yeah. interview ages ago it's um. So, Alex, yeah. what do you make of the... It's, it's very neat. I mean, it's it's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, as, uh, I'm sure I've told you before that the wisest thing I've ever heard was what a Greek cab driver once told me, which is conservatives want the strictest possible rules to apply to everyone else, mm. which is an even sort of... Crisper. ...plainer formulation yeah. of exactly yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's what conservatism is. Uh, you know, you want everyone else to... Should be shackled. <laughs> to be shackled. It certainly is now. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot with my origin story hat on, you know, about was, you know, was conservatism always like this? Mm. Because when you go back in history, you, you know, there's, there's a lot that is admirable uh, in certain times about certain conservative thinkers. And I see nothing admirable about conservatism now. In fact, I see very little thinking. Um, so I don't know at which, with, I don't know at which points in history this would have been true, but it seems... But, Definitely true now. Yeah, but isn't there a famous aphorism about Purit Puritanism that, you know, the crippling anxiety that someone somewhere is having fun? Mm. <laughs> um, and, and I think it just, it ties into that because there is a, 
there is a puritanical streak, I think, to today's neoconservatism that that just goes, especially in places like America, that's like God, Jesus, babies and guns. But again, it doesn't apply to you if you're uh, Donald Trump, who's not a puritanical fellow. Where there is a continuity here is with the conservative obsession with respectability. And with it, it used to be a type of petit bourgeois respectability. It used to be the Tories mm. were actually small landowners against the liberals who are super rich and in civil and religious liberty, but really low taxes so that they didn't involve, uh, uh, it didn't affect them. Where we are now is the conservatives are obsessed with the super wealthy. And that's the sort of respectability they crave. And yeah. it's become that loads of money culture since Thatcher. Uh, Noel Rum, what levers does the panel think we can bring to bear to affect political change? I suppose this is a big existential scream of the question. Marches don't appear to impact any British political party and neither do petitions. Direct action like sit-ins and so forth seem to enrage Tories and are met with indifference by Labour. Does writing to MPs make any difference? Does anything? Being informed is all well and good, but what can any of us do about it? Shall I let you uh, ask them to give money to Best for Britain, first <laughs> you, of all? Please, please. Shake the collection the, tin. The <laughs> Shake the collection basket. Um, I mean, vote tactically. Yeah. You will get to vote, vote wisely under the stupid system that we've got. Um, get involved, be noisy. Yeah. Don't let democracy be something that's done to you, make it something you do. Whether, and I've said this so many times, whether it's at the most local of levels, being involved in, you know, the the committee of your allotment or standing for, uh, you know, parent-teacher association, just be involved, be noisy. It does make a difference. I think on the writing to the MPs thing, what mm. we've effectively done now with our model of, of Hey MP is we have taken away any possibility of a Tory being able to stand up in Parliament and say, not a single one of my constituents yeah, yeah, has yeah. raised this issue. It is a nonsense. They can't do that. They can't do that. They they have been told time and again over whatever bill, egregious thing they're trying to push through or, or, or Brexit-related thing. I think um, a lot of these things they can't. do make a difference. I mean, I hate to say it, but I do think there is a, uh, a kind of um, a learned sort of despair mm. uh, on the left and... and, and parts of the centre. Um, because, I mean, when during the whole is Boris Johnson going to be forced out mm -hmm. or not, you know, letters to MPs made a huge, huge difference. Huge people difference. were feeling like the rage, yeah. hearing these stories about, you know, these heartbreaking stories mm -hmm. of people who, you know, couldn't spend time with loved ones during um, lockdown. You know, that's a very recent example of how that really kind Cut of... Through. That really cut through and ended up, you know, removing the prime minister. I think I'm not going to go on about this because I've always gone about this. But, you know, I do think that the direct action, I do feel that, that sort of, you know, green issues in the era of um, of Greta Thunberg, Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, even though there's many disagreements about individual actions, this stuff has made a difference. Perhaps yeah. if you're thinking of like the Remain marches that many or of Iraq us went on or organised, sure, sure, you know, you're going to feel like, well, that didn't make any difference. Again, but, you but don't it, know that... But again, yeah. did, you know, did, did again, it you don't know difference in moving Labour's position? You know, because if we hadn't, the point yeah. is if you don't do them, there's absolutely no difference because mm -hmm. people would have... Labour, for example, would have just looked out and gone, oh, people don't really appear to give a shit. Mm -hmm. I mean, Remainers don't care. They've accepted they've lost. It was very clear that many people had not accepted, you know, not accepted that, were very angry about Brexit and campaigning for a second referendum and so on. And... So I don't think that you can say that, that that any of this stuff 
simply doesn't work. You need the mo- the right timing. You need you allies need right and power. Timing. You need yeah. you need so, moments of vulnerability but for the on government. The timing. So is it Noel? Yes. Yeah. So what I would say to Noel is this is a really good time to be noisy because it's selection time. You right. know, uh, associations of all parties are selecting their candidates at the moment. And we had Stella Creasy on a couple of days ago. She had a whole list of hustings coming up. You know, whatever party interests you, now is when they select their candidate, the person who might be your MP in, you know, a a year's time. So now is the time to go along to those hustings, to ask questions, to be noisy, to make sure that your point of view is heard and that they hear it. Well, there's a great, just, just just to wrap up, there's a great line from Rebecca Solnit, which she's writing about um, climate despair, and goes, um, you know, despair about something sort of makes it more likely that it will happen. It is a form of collaboration. Mm. And yeah. I think you should always resist that sense that, that, that nothing you do will matter. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. We've reached the end of the show. So very quickly, uh, we're going to talk about some stories that have gone under the radar this week. Uh, Seth, kick us off. Yeah, you might have seen that earlier this year, Rishi Sunak signed a Brexit deal. In fact, it was at the uh, Fairmont Windsor Hotel, which belongs <laughs> to a Tory donor, Surinder Aurora. <laughs> I mention that because this week they've had a court order to demolish the hotel for a whole bunch of um, planning breaches. Brilliant. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's a metaphor. No, no, I no, mean, no, 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 uh, class actions by advertising lawyers in the States. It joins McDonald's, Wendy's, and Taco Bell, all of whom are alleged in huge gla- class actions to be skimping on fillings. Oh, shrinkflation. Yes. And, and for context, Subway settled a case in 2016 over allegations that its footlong subs were measured in what I would like to describe as grind uh, inches. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is not good for the uh, obesity crisis. I, I'm I, not just trying to make a healthier America. Don't be that guy. Don't be that person. <laughs> I think they're just trying to. Uh, I think their their hearts are in the right place. Is, is that yeah. why they've Is that why they've taken the tomatoes out of it to you make must, it healthier? You must have seen those it's online cynical, videos where they show you behind the scenes of an ad, and they put a hair dryer onto a Big Mac, and they add some wax, and it's all, it's all 
Inedible. Oh, I've been on shoots Yeah, but you like have that. to do that. You have to, it's like, so they spray it with... The but, like, but also they spray it with varnish. Yeah. But like ice cream, you have to use like, like kind of yeah. coloured mashed potato and stuff. Like, I don't know, it's a little bit of kind of... You know, no, no, but it also then, happens on grinder. Sure, but then the thing you get... Sh there is a distance between the the photo you were sent yeah. and the guy you meet at the door, yes. which is too far. It's uh, just it's a line has been crossed. <laughs> um, someone's had a very disappointing visit to Burger King this week. Uh, oh, no, yes, no, yes, me. Burger King. Let's Burger go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so what went under the radar this week? Well, the missile that hit the Progression plane, but I'm. Uh, but in a more tasteful observation. That's awful. I know, but he's awful, so it doesn't matter. It's okay when, you know, know somebody that know, comes to death is It's funny when he's like a wall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was, I exactly. was, it was a compliment. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, so I've got a whole book of <laughs> things that are acceptably funny and not. Yeah. So. <laughs> Observation have polled Scotland um, and both the SNP and Labour come out with 24 seats each. This means SNP losing uh, half of the 48 seats they won in 2019 wow. and Labour staging this major, major comeback in Scotland after, let's remember, winning precisely one seat in Scotland, Ian Murray's. So it, it, the, the headline voting uh, uh, intention is 35% uh, for Labour, which is its highest level since 2014 and only two points behind S&P on 37. Now, what's worth, wh why I've said this is under the radio and why I think it's interesting is because what it means for the general election as a whole and Labour getting the keys to number 10. So we often talk about the swing needed being large and the swing Blair achieved in 97, etc. If the S&P vote share has come down sufficiently and Labour's increased sufficiently to allow Labour to pick up uh, two dozen seats in Scotland, then you can probably knock four points off the lead over the Conservatives that they need nationally to get an overall well, majority. So it really is quite significant, I, I think, perhaps yeah. underreported. I did find it rather strange uh, over the last few years, the amount of times uh, on Twitter and uh, sometimes to, to the podcast that SNP supporters would just go, Labour is finished in mm -hmm, Scotland, mm -hmm. it's never coming back. And I just thought, considering like the history of politics in most countries, probably not Belarus, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but in most countries, it was like that. It did seem a little hubristic, but they were absolutely convinced. Mm -hmm. They were like, and I was like, Are you, do, do you think SNP is going to be in power for like forever? Is that what you're saying? And mm -hmm. so this does seem to be something that was that was bound to happen, but perhaps earlier than we expected. OK, I'm going to do a little, little word about America and my fascination with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. I know. Oh, God, I saw Right, that. you did a, a bunker on the, on the debate. So for those who don't know, uh, he's a 30-something biotech entrepreneur, uh, son of Indian immigrants, went to Harvard, Yale Law School, made uh, $10 million in a hedge fund, massively failed to launch uh, an Alzheimer's drug. Like really, you forget. Really crapped out <laughs> <laughs> on on that. But invented, reinvented himself as Fox News's woke and cancel culture guru, the author of Woke Inc. Inside Corporate oh, America's God. Social Justice Scam, and uh, the head of his own anti woke asset management from Strive. You may have noticed a theme there. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I find absolutely astonishing about him is that he is the perfect product of his time. Because back in December, 
There's a really good New York profile I recommend. Because I feel like I recoil when I see someone describe me as a conservative. Not that there's anything wrong with being conservative. It's just not how I would describe myself. Fast forward <laughs> to now. And he's basically an empty suit filled with Trumpy policies, things that he did not believe last year. So now it's like, you know, cut aid to Ukraine. Things that he did climate not believe two fucking months climate ago. Climate change is a hoax. hoax all of a sudden. He was literally yeah. saying the opposite he, two months he ago. Didn't, he, didn't, he didn't think before. And, I mean, it's... It's astonishing to see, but it's, it's also really, it's obviously very depressing because, you know, there was a real debate. I'm not sure if you remember this, but, you know, when Trump was first running, they were like, how much does he believe this? And how much is he just trying out lines? You remember he'd sort of workshop lines on the crowd and go with what worked. Now, as it turns out, it doesn't seem that the white supremacy was, you know, too much of a stretch for him. Yeah. But there was a sense that he was kind of... He was talking to the mob and seeing what they wanted. And Ramaswamy, because of his sort of background and his previously expressed opinions, he's a, he would be like a Paul Ryan kind of Republican yeah, yeah, normally. Yeah. Just kind of like slick, no. libertarian bro. No. And now he's just like exactly the same policies as Trump. It's, it's, it's the base... He's just like, I don't believe in anything. I'll let the base tell me what to believe. And that's why the going back to the utter corruption of conservatism in the modern era is it's like it's sort of more depressing. He's not more dangerous than Trump because he's not going to be president. He's just doing this to promote himself. But it's more depressing even than Trump. Yeah, because it's just basically well, like it's it's an it's he's an he's an empty vessel. He's like imprint on me whatever you like. Have you ever seen Gypsy? The either the musical or the film of the musical, no, where, you know, where the very young engine is taken backstage by the old strippers that basically tell her you gotta have a gimmick. Right. It's like a big musical number. It's like you, you know, you. One has a trumpet, another one lights up with bulbs, and it's like, and that is the political environment in America at the moment. I feel that like. People are sucked into it and they're spat out with a costume yeah. and a hook. But he's the purest product of that. Yeah. It's basically debating society brain. So you just yeah. say whatever it's works. Extraordinary, extraordinary. And Trumpism brain. He's, he's, he's quite something. I paraphrase Senator Edward Kennedy. The work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the grift shall never die. <laughs> He's one of the, the great grifters of our time. That is the show. Thank you to Seth. Thank you. Alex. Thank you. And Naomi. Uh, you have some news, Naomi. I do. Um, so listeners will have probably noticed, uh, or perhaps not, um, that I've not been appearing on the show so frequently. And after much deliberation, I have decided to bid you all a very, very fond farewell and do an exit. But before going, I did just want to say to everyone who has supported us over the last six plus years, I think my first ever show was the 9th of June 2017, how incredibly, incredibly grateful um, I am to all of you. Um, it really has got me through some very, very dark times. I have met some truly incredible people who I know are friends for life, um, and I've even roped in some lifelong friends like Seth uh, into the regular show and you'll know where to find me um, I'll be at B4B Towers I'll never be far away I've got a few uh, plans for some future projects that I'm going to let everyone know about ASAP uh, that may or may not be linked 
to the forthcoming general election. And no, I am definitely not running. So before anyone thinks that, that's not what it is. Um, uh, but I'm just concentrating on giving this corrupt government a drubbing and trying to give all of my attention to that. But a massive thank you to it's all our listeners. Of course. Especially to Dorian, especially to Alex, and of course Ian and Roz, who aren't here today. Ian's already left the show, um, but but Roz is on holiday, and thank you for putting up with me for so long. Thank you, Naomi. It's been a blast. And we can can we maybe have you back as a guest, as just the CEO of Best of Britain, promoting <laughs> the I, fight for PR when yeah, that when yeah. that really. Uh, Shall I chase you out of the room so we can actually do the line exit pursued by? <laughs> <laughs> Dry your eyes and stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu, Seth Tavo, and for the last time, Naomi Smith. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers. A renewed search for the Loch Ness Monster took place last weekend, the largest in 50 years. Explorer Alan McKenna said when they were testing the audio recording system, they heard four distinctive gloops. We all got a bit excited, ran to go to make sure the recorder was on and it wasn't plugged in, he sheepishly admitted. Real, real professionals there. <laughs> I just imagine like Nessie just like behind. He's behind you. Yeah. Turn around. I was like, no, I missed it again. Oh, the lens cap office. was off. You know, was it Loch Ness week? Yeah. <laughs> we found it, but there was no film in the camera. Um, so the team didn't find Nessie this time. Um, because it doesn't exist. But the idea of the monster still fascinates new generations. So what weird mysteries obsessed us when we were kids? Uh, Naomi? A lot. But definitely, I mean, I was quite an anxious child, so I had a very overactive imagination. But the, the thing that seemed to be in the news a lot was the Bermuda Triangle. And I remember thinking, well, we can never go to Mexico or South America because we would just disappear in a black hole unless we fly the other way around. Did you think, because I was obsessed with the Bermuda Triangle, I had a, like a book of called like Mysteries of the Sea. Right. Which a lot of time wasn't mysteries. It was just like really gruesomely illustrated pictures of disasters, yeah. like the Lusitania <laughs> or whatever. Um, but, but the Bermuda Triangle, and I think that I thought that like not just a few weird things mm. had happened, but that literally anything, Every plane, any plane, anything, anything that went yeah. into the Bermuda Triangle yeah. disappeared. Like, you yeah. simply could yeah. not get yeah. into it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, of course, millions of craft have mm. been, <laughs> passed through with no problems at all. There's and, like big cities in it, isn't there? And, There's and, some and islands. So people it. live inside <laughs> the Bermuda Triangle. There was also yes. a game show on TV at the same time where um, there were there were it, it was a gridded floor with light up tiles and the team had to navigate their way across and if they stepped on the wrong square then they'd vaporize the adventure game it, the adventure game right that was it i mean i really was very very young but i i was acutely connecting the dots between well wherever they go might be wherever the bermuda triangle planes go and it, horrified terrified terrified of all of that sort of stuff equally petrified of piranhas that there was a lot made about the piranhas yeah, in the 80s a lot of um you know don't put your pencil in the fish tank because you could get your fingers uh quicksand 
was, I think there must have been a lot of. There was. I was very scared. I mean, awareness the, of you know you you could sink and die. But if they you weren't go on the beach. There wasn't much quicksand or many piranhas in in Bexley, and I don't imagine there were many in Northern <laughs> Ireland either. So there it weren't. A, it was a funny thing to be so worried but, about. But what there was in Clark's. So when you going back, to, it's start of term. So children going to get measured for <laughs> new school shoes. There was a machine in Clark's that you would stand on. And you would put one foot in at a time and these blocks would automatically close in around it from the sides mm. and from both ends. And then you would get a width and a length measurement for it. I was convinced it was going to just chop my foot off. And I think oh, I must wow. have seen an action film where something mm. similar happened. And I was like, this is a torture device designed right. to take children's feet off. And, and, and I would be like, no, no, no. no. And, and then they'd be like, oh, well, why, why doesn't mummy use it first? And, pre-? and I was like, don't hurt my mummy. I was screaming. <laughs> well, the thing, that, the thing that I always use like, with my kids when they were just going, well, you know, what if this roller coaster, you know, collapses? Like various things yeah. that seem that might be dangerous. And I was like, if this kept happening, you would hear about it. Mm. And this would have been closed down. So I think similarly, what I said to young Naomi was like, if Clarks was routinely removing the feet from children... My mum didn't say that. It would have been... You would have heard about it in the news. They would not have but been able did, to hush that up. But we did up. keep hearing about Bermuda Triangle. I'm going to have to disagree with you there, Dorian, I'm afraid. Really? Yes, because... Um, <laughs> Rodeo coasters do constantly have loads of accidents. But you do hear about you them. You do hear about yeah. them. And also, there's the fundamental difference that you go on them for no other reason than to be scared, um, while there is a purpose to measuring your feet. No, so I'm, not, I'm, not I'm preci- very anti-roller coaster, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And my other half is very pro-roller coaster. And that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning and some merchandise. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 